felt bad at first that this sermon, my last one as pastor in residence here, would go a, a few minutes longer than even normal. <laughs> but then I realized that you're not getting a sermon tonight. <laughs> so you're really coming out kind of ahead. I'm going to begin uh, my preface, really, not the sermon itself, with a quote from a notable atheist, the late, gifted, highly educated atheist Christopher Hitchens had a stock answer whenever he was asked why he was not a Christian. Speaking of Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, he said he could not take seriously any teacher who declared, take no thought for the morrow. Because if you didn't think about tomorrow, why, you would make no plans, you'd build no businesses, you, you'd never vote, you'd never save for retirement, etc. So this otherwise brilliant man takes a third of a verse from an archaic translation that actually mistranslates the text, ignores everything else Jesus and the rest of the Bible say about time and stewardship and planning and God's provision to make this sweeping decision to reject Christianity. But the lamentable Mr. Hitchens did point to a most interesting subject. On this New Year's Day morning, New Year's Eve Day morning, we are to think of God's involvement in the flow of time that makes up our daily lives. Is it just calendar stuff? You know, uh, days, weeks, months, years, decades? Or is there a greater meaning to time itself? We know Jesus covered our sins with his grace. Has he covered our days with the same? It's at once a very theological question, but it's also a very practical matter. And it's an issue I want to address this morning. I take from my text the first 13 verses of the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, the writings, we believe, of the wisest man of his day, King Solomon. So I would ask you to give your full attention to the public reading of God's holy word once again, as I read now from Ecclesiastes 3. If you're reading in your pew Bible, you'll find this on page 554. Hear now the word of God. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, 
a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. O Father, in the ministry of your word, through the work of your spirit, You have always enabled me to speak with a voice not my own, making me wiser than I really am and more helpful than I ever could be. So by the secret yet sovereign operation of your spirit in the hearts of your church, help not only me now once more, but help these, your people as well, For we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. We ask for this in the name of the Word made flesh, the risen and ascended Word of God, Jesus Christ, who prays for us even as we pray to him. Amen. It is obvious to everyone that our lives, all of our lives, are a series of events. As the postmodern bumper sticker says, stuff happens. The real question is this, is there an overarching or is there an embedded meaning to this string of events that constitute our lives or are they just random and unintelligible things that happen to happen to us. Was Shakespeare's Hamlet right that life was just a meaningless parade of circumstances when Hamlet said, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps into this petty place day from day to day to the last syllables of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. 
for many people, not just Christopher Hitchens, but also many of the friends and family, neighbors that you see each day, perhaps even some, surely some here this morning, life really has no final meaning at all. It has no larger point. It has no rhyme, no reason. Yes, stuff happens, but it all signifies nothing. Solomon understood that viewpoint quite well. No doubt he experienced it himself. He writes in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes with a kind of, I think of it as a Shakespearean voice. He says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Now, when Solomon used that phrase, under the sun, he used it over 20 times in Ecclesiastes. He meant life as we ordinarily experience it in our natural fallen state of mind. In Solomon's life under the sun, and Hamlet's tale told by an idiot signifying nothing, are one and the same. There's no meaning to these days. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps into this petty place from day to day. Or all is vanity and striving after wind. Indeed, life is experienced exactly that way. When it is not received through the word of God and perceived through the wisdom of God. But wise Solomon also knows a more excellent way, and he weaves that into his writings in Ecclesiastes as well. With faith in the sovereignty of God working through all things, life is not a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. Life is not random. Life is not an ever-circling wheel of meaninglessness. Or to say it as Solomon would, Life is not a mere vanity of vapors, the literal Hebrew there, a vapor that dissipates and is gone, nothing to it. No, gloriously, blessedly, most wonderfully, and counterintuitively, the wise king who saw the apparent randomness of life was also able to write these words, for everything There is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Playing on the word season, Solomon is saying that everything, everything, for everything, there is a fixed and ordained time. Just as the spring follows the winter, just as summer precedes the fall, it is set, it is determined All may appear random, but all is in fact ordered in a plan that is at once inscrutable and irresistible. Every cast of the lot is determined by God, Solomon says in Proverbs. This is a most audacious thing to claim, isn't it? It's even more audacious to actually believe such a thing. 
Maybe it's crazy. After all, a dozen things happen to every one of us every day that may make no sense at all to us. And Solomon is not saying that if we just are smart enough or spiritual enough, we can discern some hidden meaning to it. But what he is saying is there is a divine ordering of events, a divine purpose of some remarkable sort, discerned, if it's discerned at all, by a rational faith, so that for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. But it's time in this sermon to ask the inescapable question, is this just wishful thinking? Is this just another vanity among all the obvious vanities of our short lives? Well, first of all, let us remember that at the, at the macro level, the biblical view of life and redemption is entirely framed by covenants that God himself has made in time and in space with human beings. If we are speaking of the great works of creation and redemption, there is no wasted time. There's no downtime. There's no irrelevant time from the first man that ever existed down to the children born this last week. Every person, every human being is, is born into a time that is marked by redemptive promises and redemptive activity from God himself. God's always framing our reality through historical covenants that fall in a timeline of redemption that precisely matches the timeline of the world itself. The covenant with Adam. Covenant with Noah. The covenant with Abraham. The covenant at Sinai with Moses. The covenant with David. And finally, in the fullness of time, the new covenant with Jesus himself and through him. And we, we all here are blessed to live in this covenantal administration in the time of the new covenant. It's quite literally late in the storyline. And so many precious promises have already been fulfilled. We saw that in Advent, did we not? In the reading of those texts. This is the prime age of the Spirit. As Pastor Bill was was praying about earlier. This is the age of conversion. This is the time the Spirit is being poured out. And we have the great commission to the world. This is the time that hearts of stone are made into hearts of flesh. Before the Lord. This is the time, that pregnant time between the first and the second comings of the Son of God Himself. These are the last days, Peter says, and the birth pangs of the new heavens and the new earth are already upon us. And our wisest, best prayer is always, Come, Lord Jesus, come soon, Lord. That's the macro view of life. But now Solomon's talking about the micro view here in chapter 3. 
He's talking about the things that are in our personal lives. Everything from birth to death is covered. There's a time to be born. There is a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. There's a time to kill kill and a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. There's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. A time to mourn. A time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek. A time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war. And a time for peace. There is a comprehensive seasonality in every redeemed life. It it almost seems to me that the, the macro view of time found in the great covenants of world history has seeped down into the micro details of all of our lives and all of our days. And all things, Solomon says now, all things have their proper season. For as Paul said in Ephesians 1, the God who secured our salvation through predestination didn't stop there. Paul says he also is working all things according to the counsel of his will. You know what all things means? It means all things. All things including the squirrel chewing through your cable TV wire, including the satisfaction you felt at your grandson's graduation, including the automobile accident that killed the little Girl Scout, including each day's sunrise, including the destruction of the Israeli fences that separated the murderous Hamas terrorists from sleeping Jewish families. And it's also inclusive of the antibodies in your own blood that just this week, perhaps without you even knowing it, fought off a disease that would have killed you if they were not working silently for you All the time in your body. You see, God always accomplishes all his holy will in all things. We men and we women, we have our plans, we have our intentions and our projects, but it's always God's will that is actually done. Not his preceptive will, which is his moral commands. People violate those all the time. But his decretive will. The things that he decrees in his sovereign control, which is everything that actually comes to pass. 
Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 21 declares, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Amen? Look, I I can't stress enough what a wondrous view of life this can be. As ragged and raw and threatening as life seems to be, And to be honest, if we're honest, it seems that way to all of us at times. Nevertheless, the wisdom of faith claims that there is something holy and good that is yet at work in it all and through it all. After all, our current view of our reality and of all the history of the earth really pivots, doesn't it, on three days in Jerusalem. When a most brutal and seemingly inexplicable cross is followed by a gloriously empty tomb. That's the fulcrum of all time. That's the moment through which we see everything. So this isn't some kind of fanciful faith here. This isn't religious wishful thinking. No, it's based in history. It's based in God himself and what he has graciously done. It it rests on his promises, not on our expert analysis of events. It takes into account also the really inexplicable survival of the true church through the ages, through persecution from the outside, and incompetence and unfaithfulness and heresy on the inside of the visible church. And so we look to God himself, to what he has done to interpret our lives, not the other way around. That's the way most people do it. They judge God by their own lives. We see it the other way. As one Scottish Minister, a congregational minister, uh, an abolitionist from the 19th century put it, and only a Scot could put it in this manner. He says, the perversity of sin has indeed disturbed the order of God's providence, but yet the work progresses. The wheel in the middle of the wheel, he's using a reference to, to the first chapter of Ezekiel, that vision of wheels within wheels. The wheel in the middle of the wheel moves forward and performs the appointed work. Now, caprice, short-sighted ignorance, fickleness of purpose, those things distinguish the works of man. But here, in the center of the wheel, everything is worthy of God. He says, it is the wise and regular and orderly administration of one who sees the end from the beginning and to whom there is no unanticipated contingency and whose omniscient eye in the midst of what appears to be inextricable confusion has a thorough and intuitive perception of the endlessly diversified relations and tendencies of all events and all their circumstances, discerning throughout the whole the perfection of harmony. The perfection of harmony. There is, then, he writes, a season for every work 
of God. And it comes in its season. Do you believe that, beloved? Do you really? Brothers and sisters, this is why we say God is never disturbed. He's never anxious. He's never fretting. He's never depressed. I mean, it's not that he doesn't care for us. He cares for us more than we care for ourselves. But his caring is expressed through and in his providential ordering of all things, don't you see? He's always working through all things to maximize his own glory getting through the deepest possible blessing upon his covenant people. So that all things really do work for our good ultimately. The foundation therefore of all lasting intelligent joy must be the sovereignty of God and please, let your joy in that. Not your, not your argumentativeness about the doctrine with others, but let your joy in your trust in God's sovereignty be your best witness in this doubting, despairing world and in the context of other Christians in other denominations of Christ's church which seem to lack the full confidence in this promise. Because that joy is based in the sovereignty of the Lord God. It'll never end. It's never going to be stopped. It's never going to be delayed until it is all consummated in the new heavens and the new earth, world without end. Amen. And then, as we are promised, our faith in this will become sight. And so we do indeed have discernible seasons in each of our lives. That's what these words from Ecclesiastes 3 are clearly teaching us. And God's ordained seasons in our lives have certain characteristics. That's why we say this is one season and not another season. I know, for instance, that in the next season of my life, as I downshift, that's the word I'm now using, I'm downshifting from full-time paid ministry to the church to a more focused ministry, shall we say. It will be a season that will, of necessity, require less physical stamina. Now, that's not the most important aspect of it, but it is one that I know has to be taken into account now. Because, you see, it's in the providential cards. I feel it every day, or I feel the lack of it every day, of stamina. You just see me at my best here. I don't want to overstate our ability to discern these things, these divinely purposed characteristics of our life's seasons. They're never perfectly understood by us. But, and and I think this is so crucial, just because they're not perfectly understood doesn't mean they're not to be understood at all. Oftentimes we can understand his purposes better after the fact, right? The Puritan John Flavel famously said, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. Having said that, once the purpose of a season is apparent to us, 
We can confidently pursue it as God's good will in our lives. I want to stress this. There's so much lack of confidence today. The Apostle Paul said to the Roman congregation in Romans 15.29, I know that when I come to you in Rome, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Do you interpret your life as a series of God-ordained and Christ-blessed seasons? Do you? How would it change the experience of your own life if you believe that God ordained the time and that Christ had blessed it to you? Think of the seasons of David's life, Solomon's famous father. There were his years as the almost forgotten youngest son of Jesse, spending time out with the sheep under the stars. Total obscurity. Then there was the season of his sudden ascendancy in Israel after David's astounding slaying of Goliath, the Philippine, uh, not the Philippine, the Philistine weapon of mass destruction. Then there was the dangerous season of being hounded by the jealous King Saul. Then there was the Camelot years of his own kingship and the capitalization of Jerusalem followed by the season of discipline and repentance due to his sin with Bathsheba, which, of course, would ultimately result in the birth of Solomon, who wrote our book today. Finally, it was followed by David's declining years, where he made plans for the succession of the crown to Solomon and initiated the process of building a temple for the worship of God. All seasons different all seasons productive in their own way. That's the full life. That's the good life. That's the abundant life. And the Lord very often uses others instrumentally to inaugurate or close out a certain season in our lives. And in a sense, we should thank them because though God is sovereignly in control, these people are freely instrumental in it all. For David, such instruments of God's providence included his father Jesse, of course, prophet Samuel, even Goliath the Philistine, King Saul and Jonathan, and Bathsheba, prophet Nathan, and Absalom, his son, and so on, and so on. In my own ministry, God used Pastor Bill Barkley to open up the capstone of my congregational ministries here at Sovereign Grace. You know, ministers largely define our seasons by the congregations that we serve. And in many ways, as I I think across the five congregations I have served in Virginia and North Carolina... God saved the best for last. Bill, I'll never forget the lunch that we had at that Thai restaurant in Matthews where a certain rather burned out pastor wept before you 
as we talked about what might come next in my life. And I'm never going to be able to thank you enough for your willingness to let me try one more time to put my hand to the pastor's plow in this congregation. And you too, Christy, thank you for your open heart to us as well. And of course, in God's good plan, this 11-plus year season now has been so helpfully sustained, I really mean this, by the exceptional elders and the zealous deacons that I have been so blessed to work with and for. It's also hard to imagine this mostly happy congregational season of our lives without the close company of such sterling servants of the new covenant as Sean McCann and Rob Dykes and John Currit and Catherine Bowser and Arthur Rankin and Ben Thomas and now Will Keaton and Ricky Johnson, not to mention all the other interns, And let's not forget Libby Applegate and Danielle Belcher and Rebecca Schillinglaw and Faith Clausinga in the office. And let's not forget Jenny Henderson and Alice Church, Kristen Bostian, and so on and so on. And I'm not going to forget the musicians either. The musicians here. The choir, the ushers, the sound guys up there, Tim, Caleb Owens. Man, what a team we have had and still have at Sovereign Grace. And no less than that, the body itself here, the congregation, what I believe the psalmist meant when he spoke of the great congregation. How Much a blessing you all have been to the Turbovilles. What a season this has been for us. What a season you have made it for me. Now finally, none of my seasons of ministry across the five congregations I have served, none of them would have been possible at all. I want to stress this. If the Lord had not providentially provided the woman that I needed but did not know how much I needed, the pastor's wife, par excellence, in her grounded and energetic, practical wisdom, the perfect complement to my head-in-the-clouds, distracted, abstract mind, my help me my sweet wife, my best friend, Nancy. How the Lord, our God, has used you, my dear sister in Christ. He still is, Nancy. He still is every day. Brothers and sisters, God is always working through our lives in these seasons. He sovereignly appoints for us. He's never not working out his providence. There's no off-season for the Lord. The seasons do cover every matter under heaven. They include the happy times, but no less the sad times. 
For there is a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to seek and there is a time to lose. Frankly, the sovereign Lord often sanctifies us more. He makes us more like Christ through the hard seasons than through the happier ones. Remember the title of that wonderful book by the great hymn writer Margaret Clarkson who suffered with chronic disabling migraine headaches her whole devout life. That title, Grace Grows Best in Winter. In my life, some of the painful but productive winter seasons have included the time of personal depression I experienced as a new believer in college that actually led to my led to my conversion. The period also that we went through before leaving First Presbyterian Church in Hendersonville in the mainline denomination, several years of turmoil. In the early 90s where we had some intense conflict with an associate pastor. And of course 2015, the great year of heart disease. And then the time of our dear Brad's decline and death. And of course the hard COVID years. These were winter seasons. But if we understand God's faithfulness... And the way he grows us through the winter seasons, we can say with Solomon in verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. That's not some trite, silly claim. It's not some pious spin on a grim situation. It's not whistling past the graveyard. And Solomon as well is not claiming that such divine care for us is obvious in the circumstances themselves. It's not clear to us typically. Right after Solomon says that God had made everything beautiful in his time, he says this, Also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Did you see that? Did you hear that? So that man cannot find out what God has done. God's seen to it. He's made it so we can't know it entirely. We can't study our way out of the darkness. Even going to seminary won't clear that up. Now that's not what you and I expected him to say, is it? Our faith doesn't come from having, you see, a a heavenly a secret decoder ring to find cheerful, positive sides to everything in life. It doesn't come from prematurely writing a happy ending to every narrative in our lives. No, our God of is a, the, our knowledge of God in salvation. That eternity that Solomon says he God has put into our hearts actually teaches us not only what we can know about the Lord and his plans, but also what we can't know about the Lord and his plans. I've said this before, but as my sister Jenny said to me several years ago in a time of great distress, when times like that are upon us, we simply must abide. It doesn't say understand. 
It says abide. Jesus says we have to abide in him. Sometimes we got to just abide. We got to hold on. Hold on to him. Hold on to each other and wait upon the Lord. Because he has put eternity in our hearts. He has enabled us through it all to cry out, Abba, Father. He wants us to cling to him. Not to our own understanding of his purpose. He will reveal his purpose in due season, even if that season doesn't come until heaven. Listen, do you see your life as being under the shepherding care and the fatherly providential ordering of a loving God who means nothing but blessing and care for you, dear Christian? Jesus said his father, if his father cared for sparrows and lilies, how much more for you? Now, to close it out here, the Lord knows exactly what this next season of our lives holds for Nancy and me. There's a lot that I'm going to miss about the public ministry here. But truthfully, I'm quite excited about what may be coming I mean, none of it, as far as I can see, is exotic in any way. I've, I've got 40 years of files and lesson plans and sermon manuscripts to purge and sort and organize. I definitely want to spend some more time with my dear grandchildren. I have a huge, huge honey-do list that I've just got to get a start on. I do need to lose weight, obviously. I'm determined to write some poems and some hymns. I want to encourage and help some of the small churches in my presbytery. And I'm quite content with that portion, if that's what it turns out to be for me. There may be something else. You know, each season has new limits, but also new potential for service. While the blitzkrieg of congregational work recedes, I hope this new season will provide new ways to serve others. I'm asking the Lord now to use that old adage, the pen is mightier than the sword, to, 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 that I could employ that again as I want to write for a better way for our country than the current idolatries of the political left and right. In America, Solomon did say there is a time, and I think pastoral ministry is a time to keep silent about those things, but there's also a time to speak. This much I know, this much I am certain, believing in God's providence in the passing seasons of life has been such a satisfying way to live. It really has. I began this sermon by quoting a bitter atheist. I'll end it now by quoting a battle-scarred Christian who at the last came to know some personal contentment in the Lord. Johnny Cash once sang a song called A Satisfied Mind. How many times have you heard someone say, If I had his money, I could do things my way. But little they know that it's so hard to find one rich man in ten 
with a satisfied mind. Once I was winning in fortune and fame, everything I dreamed for to get a start in life's game. Then suddenly it happened. I lost every dime, but I'm richer by far with a satisfied mind. Money can't buy back your youth when you're old, or a friend when you're lonely, or a love that's grown cold. The wealthiest person is a pauper at times compared to the man with the satisfied mind. And then finally, this stanza. When life has ended and my time has run out, my friends and my loved ones I'll leave, there's no doubt. But there's one thing for certain when it comes my time, I'll leave this old world with a satisfied mind. And may it be so for you too, my dear Christian friends. For the Lord has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity in our hearts. And in all of that, we can all be truly satisfied. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father, may we all find satisfaction in the knowledge that you have appointed and Christ himself has blessed all the seasons of our lives. May we continue to learn in the school of Christ that you are working through all things for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. We love you, Lord. And we are so satisfied in you, in whom we abide, abide forever. In Christ's name we pray, amen.